This event was recorded live at the 2017 Edinburgh International Book Festival. Okay, that's my wave. Uh, good evening and welcome to the Edinburgh International Book Festival. My name is Lee Randall and with me are Mina Kandasamy and Helen McClory. Uh, tonight we're going to be talking about women who don't conform, women who won't do as they're told, women who suffer. There's a line in Helen's novel that says, Sarah went to get a cup of tea thinking that to stay whole, to be wounded, but to manage, that was the point. We'll be talking a lot about how women manage pain and about how one transforms trouble into art. I'll just ask you to keep your phones off for now. Later we'll turn up the house lights and you'll get a chance to um, ask your questions and because the light will be on it won't be so distracting. So if you want to tweet about the event, that'll be grand. Um, and afterwards, I'll be whisking our authors into the bookshop where they'll be signing books and I'm hoping that you'll be inspired to come and get a book signed. So what we'll do is I'll talk to each author individually for a short time and then we'll open it up and we'll have a three-way gab and then obviously you'll get your opportunity. So I'll, I'll, I'll just go in order. Um, poet and translator and activist Mina Kandasamy's first novel was The Gypsy Goddess, which was based on the 1968 massacre of Dalit agricultural workers. Uh, her new novel, When I Hit You or A Portrait of the Writer as a Young Wife, is a disturbing, brutal, and sometimes funny book about an abusive marriage. It's about survival and triumph, and it made me give a little roar at the end because it ends on this very life-affirming note. Um, it's a story of a smart, funny, dynamic, well-traveled, politically engaged woman who marries a man who seems to be on her intellectual and political wavelength, but he removes her from the world, trapping her in a few rooms in a strange town, uh, he begins by asking to, well, demanding to share her email passwords. He erases her off of social media, belittles her work and the language she writes in. He calls her a whore, he beats her and he rapes her, but he can't destroy her spirit or her sense of self. So can you, I'm, I'm going to turn to you now yeah. because it's your beautiful novel and I'm hoping that you can, that was a very brief sketch of it and if you can fill in a bit more and maybe give us a little bit of a flavor of the beautiful language. Uh, should I read a little? Yeah, yeah okay. Um, I will uh, read a little about uh, how this story uh, comes to be. In the extremely unlikely event that a constant direct reference to my condition has not sparked sufficient interest in the listener, for my mother to divulge my follicle condition, she would move on briskly and disapprovingly to talk about other things. In most cases, however, the recipient of her token advice always seemed to have a healthy curiosity and this pleased her enormously. I've never seen so much lies in my life, lies or loves or however you call it. You know what I'm talking about. Her hair was swarming with it. She would be sitting by my side and I could see these creatures run across her head. They would drop on her shoulder. I put her through 12 years of school and she had hair that reached her knees and not once did she have any problem with head lies. Not once. Now she was back home after only four months of marriage and that criminal had cut my daughter's hair short and it was infested. The lies drained my girl of all energy. I would put a white bedsheet over her head and rub her hair and then the sheet would be full of lice, at least a hundred. Killing them individually was impossible, so I dunked the sheet in boiling water. 
With each progressive retelling, the hundreds became thousands, the thousands tended towards infinity, and the lies multiplied, becoming settlements and then townships and then cities and then nations. In my mother's version of the story, these lies caused traffic disturbances on my hair. They took evening walks on my slender neck. They had civil war over territory. They recruited an enormous number of over-enthusiastic child soldiers. And then they engaged in out-and-out war with my mother. They mounted organized resistance, set up base camps in the soft area of the scalp above the ears and in the nape of the neck, where it was always harder to reach. And they were being decimated slowly and surely by my mother's indefatigable efforts. Every war strategy was employed, Sun Tzu was invoked. Appear weak when you're strong and appear strong when you're weak. When your oppo opponent is of choleric temper, seek to irritate him with more chlorinated washes than he can handle. Make use of the sun and the strongest shampoo. Above all, do not spend time bothering about lice rights and genocide tribunals when you're defending a liberated zone. This is how my story of young woman as a runaway daughter became in effect the great battle of my mother versus the head lice. And because my mother won this battle, the story was told endlessly and it soon entered the canon of literature on domestic violence. The Americans had trigger warnings and graphic content cautions attached to the course material, but otherwise it picked up a lot of traction elsewhere. It was taught in gender studies programs and women of color discussed it in their reading groups. It was still a little too dirty and disorienting for white feminists, and it was perhaps considered a touch too environmentally unfriendly for the eco-feminists, and the postmodernists disregarded it because my mother's telling ignored the crucial concept of my husband's agency to beat me. And even those who forgot the original context of the story or the bad marriage setting always remembered it as a fable about one mother's unending, unconditional, over-conditioned love. Naturally, I hope that anyone can understand why I am reluctant to allow my mother's story to become the standard, authorized King James version of my misadventures in marriage. So I think one of the reasons, yeah, as, as the reading shows, was also to kind of uh, claim a story about, you know, being a victim of violence because it's a very widespread phenomenon in India. So when I wanted to write about it, I was, uh, yeah, I wanted to tell what it feels to be a woman and choose the novel form for that. And, but you, and you flag up your intentions very clearly in the subtitle. Mm -hmm. This is not, this, that is a very strong story, the story of the marriage mm -hmm. in this book. But it's also very much a book about the act of writing. The act of writing itself and the act of how you want the story to be told. Because uh, the story begins five years after. So we have, we as readers have the security of knowing that you will serve the, the character. Mm. I, I say you, it yes, is a character, me, yes. but, but, it, but it, the character has no name. So mm. um, the narrator, mm -hmm. we know the narrator will survive. But uh, we don't know what, how, at what, you know, how that will happen. Uh, I, I like this uh, idea of, you know, the fact that, yeah, you know, as a writer, I'm confused with the narrator. But actually, I, th I think that this kind of uh, divide between fiction, non-fiction, real, novel, autobiography, all of this do not really exist because uh, the thing is, when I was in a bad marriage, that felt like being in the novel to me. That felt so unreal because how could I be in this kind of situation? How could I be a very educated, liberated feminist be beaten up within, you know, a marriage? So for me, the idea was that how... And so, like, if you're in a novel 
or you see yourself as a character in a novel perhaps mm. you should write that novel you know yeah, yeah. <laughs> and then f- reality dis- be- be- becomes fiction and then f- therefore you know the act of fiction becomes you know more real for you you know the act of actually telling a story means okay i have some control over this the act of uh, i think it's an element of yeah take uh, taking laying claim to some form of power in telling a story yes and not letting other people yeah, not letting other people's versions yeah ruin it for you mm-hmm. or just claim it for you and also i think behind behind the uh, the idea of uh, telling a story is also how domestic violence is seen it's seen as something that's uh, because it's so widespread in india because nobody talks about it mm-hmm. because even if you talk about it the immediate thing is that oh but if you if you were being beaten you did something wrong you know like everything that happens to women like if you are raped it's because you were wearing the wrong clothes so if you right. are beaten then you did something or if you were being beaten why didn't you leave yeah why didn't you leave yeah but i think in india it's the question is why didn't you leave but more like what did she do that made him beat her you know like so you're there's a constant victim blaming so and then all all of this also adds up to the fact that uh who is this women behind it because we yeah. always think that when it happens to a woman she's a helpless person or we think that uh, she's a weak person she's a young person she cannot speak for herself mm. we don't understand that at the heart of it is also it's it can be very academic it can be very ideological it can be all of these complex things well it's a, she's n- the character is an educated well traveled intelligent woman yeah. the husband is you know this is a middle class family this is not it's not the setting one would expect Mm-mm. when one wants to pretend that domestic violence oh it only happens to other people these are people just like everyone in this room uh yeah, yeah that's also that's another thing isn't it like we've uh we've gone into a culture where we criminalize the working class and the poor so much that we think bad things happen to other people yes, like bad yes. like only good things happen to us or you know the most uh difficult thing that could happen to middle class couple is somebody having an affair you know yeah. or s- one of these very middle class traumas and on the other hand yeah we're getting beaten up getting a murder you know all all of that just stays outside so we think we are sanitized and protected somehow but yeah unfortunately and, am i correct Sorry. that marital rape is still not criminalized in india or uh, is that not true anymore no marital rape is not uh, criminalized and every time they have tried to criminalize it to talk about criminalizing marital rape uh the response has been that it will destroy the family structure and india recently actually legalized um uh, having sex with your minor wife saying that even that like so basically certain kind of pedophilia where it involves your wife is okay so you're not talking even about you know rape of adult women but even if it's allowed for minors so on the one hand this kind of thing happened but we also live in a society where I was on you know on live television and somebody asked me how can a male rape his wife and this is on television people like he doesn't even understand like for him it's so incomprehensible because the wife is the property of the husband that's there in the mind so how could he be raping her because he is helping himself to what belongs to him so that's the perception so even to to talk about it because you know the there's also this idea of rapists you know something with the women is screaming and you know this the yeah, villain chasing yeah, yeah. her so like the very bollywood comes out of the dark yeah yeah, yeah. and it's a very bo- it's a very bollywood construction of rape as well so just to tell the rape is about consent as opposed to you know the cinematics or the dramatics of it and to reduce it into the everyday for people to look at it and to encounter it i think that was important yeah it's also um 
the narrator has a prior relationship with a politician and it's something of a clandestine relationship because he's not very open about it. And I was really struck, and this is something we'll come back to mm -hmm. later, he tells her, as enlightened as he's supposed to be and as much as they care about it, he tells her that her feminism is a problem and it's going to cause her more... So even in that relationship, mm -hmm. which is... He says, no, 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 it's no good to be a... Fe you're, you'll cause trouble with your feminism. No, I, I think uh, uh, if you're, uh, you know, a woman who's a writer at this point, uh, especially in an Indian culture, then everything that you do is seen through the prism of feminism ruining you. So the, uh, the other day there's this whole debate about, you know, women and clothes and people are like, oh, but all this is being raked up by the feminists because you d women don't understand that this is nature. So, yeah, feminism becomes the easy thing to scapegoat, you know, meaning that ad ad because for them, women are incapable of even being bad. You understand, like, mm -hmm. we, are, we are in the state of still being objects I that we cannot yeah. even be, like, you know, willfully a bad person or we cannot even willfully decide. So it has to be some kind of brainwashing that's done this. So it is feminism that's, you know, making us all, all evil. We are good, you know. So that, that's the understanding. Let's bring Helen in. Um, Helen McClory grew up in Skye and in Edinburgh. She got her BA in St. Andrews, her master's degree in Australia, and her PhD in creative writing at Glasgow University. She wrote a story collection called On the Edges of Vision, which won a Saltire First Book Award. And now she's written a novel called Flesh of the Peach, which, among other things, explores the effects of grief. And in it, we follow a woman called Sarah as she travels across America after being dumped by her lover and learning of her mother's death. Sarah's a British woman who's been living in New York. She's, she calls herself a failed artist. Unfortunately, she's the daughter of a very successful artist, um, which is partly why theirs was a very complicated mother-daughter relationship. Her mother has left her a lot of money, but rather than go directly back to England to claim her fortune, Sarah sets out by bus, by Greyhound bus, goes to New Mexico to her mother's cabin there, and once there it's fair to say that she is a disruptive presence. So that's my praise of your novel, I'm sure you can explain it much better and give us a bit of a taste of it. Okay, uh, so that all that is true, but it's also a novel told in flash fictions. So there's uh, over 102 chapters in the book and uh, several sections which are more poetic than uh, prose, uh, although there's a lot of overlap. I, li I liked what Mina was saying about, you know, kind of the, the why make distinctions so much. Uh, there's a lot of overlap. I'm going to read from some of those uh, more unusual flash fiction-y sections. These are sort of fantastical imaginings and they're all titled what she would spend her money on. So they're the inheritance that Sarah is waiting for but has not yet received. It's all tangled up in with the lawyers and uh, she allows herself to go in a kind of fantastical journey of thought. Okay, so. She would build a house out of dog teeth she would build a garden out of food, out of that hard, sweet stuff made to look like cigarettes or chalk, lickable cloisters and a sunroom of sugar glass in which she would eat only savouries, 
and the sound of birds would be the only noise. Silence was a need, pristine was a need. She would buy herself a new self. It would be a girl in blue with the narrow wrists fashioned with copper insets, the reassuring heaviness as she rested them in her lap, what she would spend her money on. She would get huge slabs of carcass from best beloved cattle, smooth marbled flesh. She would hang these in a specially prepared cellar and frighten herself with their bodies and pungency in the dark. She would buy up old cheap china tea sets, the kind so thin, translucent, they seemed unwell and she feared to hold them. She would return to candlelight and drink beef broth to stave all fevers. She would choose to be that kind of aristocrat, to live the austerities of another age. She would keep a collection of artisan knives and cut the cattle flesh for hanging on an antique clockwork roaster that would dangle and twist the carcass part over the flame. She would watch the carcass become meat as it cooked in the huge yellow-tiled kitchen. To her dried lips apply a balm of suet. She would eat handfuls of the cooled and bloody meat in the salon, all alone, with the windows letting in the humid air off the creek. Vases of lilies on coffee tables, too high to see if she had guests. What she would spend her money on? Counselling. No, listen. She'd pay an immobile gentleman or lady a fat sum to say, I'm sensing some hostility, or whatever it was would that they would say unto the harpy Sarah, beating her green-black wings against the bookshelves and shrieking. Shrieking about something inhuman and full like a black flock of all-denied majesty. Pearls at her throat and a dress also of feathers and a borderline personality level of neckline. That's what they'd do. They'd pathologize her fashion choices and keep their silence on her gore-stained teeth. She'd pay her money to be told she was not a monster, nothing of the like, mm -hmm. but something quite domestic, who, could, who should adjust herself to the world for better peace of mind. Sarah, with her money, would levitate, incredible wingspan, bluster from them, beating the books from the shelves, the notes scattered, and she would shriek again and crash through the windows of the office. They always had floor-to-ceiling windows for such moments. And in a rain of glass, she would escape and be always magnificent, monstrous, female, spurious, and headed on to the next city to sack. Yeah, thank you for that. Thank you. Why, why use the flash fiction format? Uh, it evolved quite naturally with the sense of the character as a fragmented person who can't bring herself together to form a fluid narrative. She has to, she goes from moment to moment in these shattered pieces and that works with the flash fiction formula and it's also reflected on the sentence level where the sentences are, you can probably hear, I'm, I'm reading it out at a normal pace but the uh, punctuation is very uh, emotionally based. There's a shattering of the language to reflect her own inability to draw herself together um, or maybe her unwillingness. Mm -hmm. at some times to draw herself together and, and be more palatable and easy to read. Um, once I fell in on the flash fiction form, it just felt really natural to do it like that. And I think my mind works in that way as well. These compartmentalized, really condensed, sharp little pieces that build up to form a picture of a life, but never a complete picture, because I don't think you can fully form a complete picture of somebody 
who doesn't understand themselves particularly, mm -hmm. or who is in the process of being created and creating themselves. Um, and that's also reflected in her understanding of other people. So her understanding of other people is fragmented and biased and uh, shifting. So it really helped, oddly, to draw it together by smashing it apart with a little hammer like that. Makes that makes sense. Mm. Now, you send her across America. I've never even done this, and I'm from there. You send her across America on a Greyhound bus, but you actually made the journey yourself, didn't you? I did. What was that, what was that like? Disgusting. And how much <laughs> of it made its way into the book? A lot of it made its way into the book. It was a horrible uh, experience in terms of comfort, the Greyhound bus uh, system. Um, well, it shows you all the wrong sides of the tracks and all of the the poverty that's in the states, the neglected areas. Um, if you go through, you, as I did, three days straight, as she does, you'd never have a chance to get a hot meal because there are no restaurants near the Greyhound bus stations. There's nothing to be had. There's often not even a vending machine. There's uh, perhaps Coca-Cola, that's about it. Uh, so it's really uncomfortable. The people who get the bus, you get to see a, a cross-section of society that you wouldn't perhaps see normally all together. So you find prisoners uh, who have just been released. You find uh, Amish people or maybe Mennonite people riding the bus because they won't drive, but they'll take public transport. Um, families who are traveling to reunite uh, the long, slow, hard way. Mm -hmm. um, and, and a few of the instances actually in the book happened to me. So there's a, a moment where Sarah is in a bus station toilet and she meets this woman who starts begging from her and uh, she's kind of trapped in this toilet and can't get out so she gives her some money and the woman's like is that all and spits on her mm. luckily for me I didn't get spat on but that more, more or less happened to me and uh, another incident with some gun smuggling also happened <laughs> to me it's a wonderfully colorful kind of journey to do but it really it made me have such a respect for people who are traveling across in the most difficult conditions and um, for immigrants in general because a lot of the people on board are mm. from the economic groups that are neglected well like you that. I've heard you refer to this as um, about failing at being an immigrant. Mm -hmm. What do you mean by that? Um, well, I mean that immigration is an exceedingly hard thing to do um, successfully. It involves a certain shattering and reassemblage as you cross from one country to another country, uh, leaving behind some things, taking others with you, perhaps that you'd rather not take mm. with you, but you always do. Everywhere you go, there you are. Um, and then having to assimilate, because there really is a lot of force to try and assimilate people, mm. even in the States, which seems to, that they, well, until recently, they had a, a message that that's what they were doing, even though it was never really true, uh, that you are welcome to bring your traditions and it's a big melting pot. It's not as much of that. Um, to see that happen, because I, I lived in the States and really struggled with it, this book came out of that kind of, awe at how you reassemble yourself after making a big shift in culture. Mm. Uh, Sarah is an example of someone who doesn't manage to stay in the country that she's moved to, so a bit like me. She doesn't manage to plant her roots down and address her, her shattering and rebuild herself in the way that she wants. She's sliding out of control at certain points 
and even from people who might be able to help her, she can't draw from that, she can't draw from anything. <coughs> so she doesn't be become a success at, at making that shift. Uh, neither did I, so I can really understand it as a, as a, a failing that's human, I guess. Okay, that's interesting. Mm. I guess I'm the opposite because I've been here almost 20 years. Successful immigrant. <laughs> yeah, so either that or stubborn. <laughs> um, I want to ask you both. Um, there is this prevailing notion that in any book there has to be someone to like, especially if it's a woman at the center of a book. Mm -hmm. There's also this supposition that female authors need to make their readers feel comfortable in the presence of their narrative. Neither of you do this, which is wonderful, but I just, uh, what, do you think that's about suppressing the female voice, or do you think that's about just the general notion that as women we're supposed to be amenable and agreeable and this is how we get along in the world? Where, where do we go with that? Um, I think, uh, well, if Helen wants to, she can go first, but yeah. Uh, personally, I think uh, there's two different layers that to unpack. One is women in general, and the second is the women as a writer. And uh, women in general are expected to, yeah, you know, talk softly, be demure, be adjusting, be passive, all of this, so that you know the man can expand and occupy and feel a reflected glory because not because he's great, but because the women shrinks in his presence. But I think the women writer actually pays a, a much a greater price for this because we are never seen as individual people, but we are seen as an extension. So if you are uh, if you are who you are, then you you have the ambition of Sylvia Plath, even if you don't declare it. Just saying you're a women writer means that, oh, yeah, she's as an, an ambition in a woman is a bad thing. Mm -hmm. So, or you, ha you have like, yeah, the sexual promiscuity of uh, Anna Isnin because you are a women writer, not because you declare yourself to be sexually promiscuous. So I think each of this is like, uh, you suddenly start occupying a space-time continuum in which they've already demonized all previous uh, figureheads who are women writers? Mm -hmm. So, um, so uh, as writers, you know, I have experienced like a senior male writer uh, come into a room in a, you know, like an author's lounge at a festival, hold his imaginary breast like this, and say Miss Militancy to me because he was trying to make the notion that my book sold based on my body. So this is so this is exactly how you know this this writer got you know nominated for the Booker Prize or something. So, but that's the kind of thing they would do. You know, even if they are on the cusp of greatness, they would do this to take a woman down. And I was a poet at the time. I was not even trying to be a novelist. You know, so mm -hmm. I had very modest ambitions. But just the fact that you could be a woman, you could be published, people could know you, makes a man like come out and do this kind of shaming and humiliation, especially in front of other writers, to say that. Oh, you think you're a writer, but you know I can spot you. You're the one who is, you know. Mm. So I think this kind of uh, there is, as you said, yeah, unlikable women characters, but also the fact that you're a women writer, also, you know, there's a projection of all of this onto you itself. So, so we become characters. Yes, we become. Public. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think I agree with that, and it can be more insidious too. So uh, people can look at your book and invent the intent that you had yeah. or say that you didn't have any intent yeah. as perhaps did did you know you were making her unlikable 
And it's like, yes, obviously. <laughs> uh, I, I've seen that with uh, lots of other women writers. Say, yeah, did you know? Did you know that character? She's just really horrible. And it's like, well, yeah, she was telling horrible jokes. I mean, obviously, there's there's creativity there. The idea that you're a creative agent yeah. is still a, a tricky one no, to get it's across. It's the same. We, like we just we were discussing before we came here. One of the things was how they said that it's a very tightly written novel, but whether the author intended it or not, we don't know. Like, yeah, <laughs> I just accidentally ended up writing this. <laughs> I, I think it's, it's, it's just like, yeah, the same with the use of metaphor or anything. Like, yeah, sometimes she trips on this metaphor because, yeah, that's the kind of thing that happens. Yeah, there's a certain um, a gaze in critique mm -hmm. of your work where you feel like if it wasn't you writing, if it was a man writing it, the critique would be of the work itself and not every all these shadows that they are casting on the work. But I also think, and this is something uh, where we learn, like this is the kind of book I would have never written because I knew that when you're a woman and you're writing about yourself or the experience of marriage or domesticity, then you get into that box. So when, I, when, when we start ourselves, we fashion ourselves as its exact opposite. So I was going and researching a class struggle yeah. in the 60s, yeah. which is very political, where men are at the center, at the heart of it. And so, you know, so even to prove yourself, you have to write something non-biographical, non-autobiographical. You have to write something political outside, just so that, you know. And then you realize once the book is out, like, they're still going to read it, like, in relation to you, and not in relation to, you know, some, oh, she's written the novel of modern India, or like, oh, this is the book that talks about politics. Because if you're a man, you're politically well-received, and yeah. if you're a woman, like, oh, no, it's just one woman's experience. Yeah, the, the universal uh, is for the man, yeah. and the domestic is the woman, always, even though if it's a man writing a domestic novel, then yeah. somehow it's universal. Which most are. Yeah. Most are. I mean, we, uh, we have had this conversation uh, in this stage, and others throughout the festival, most books are domestic, mm -hmm. realistically. That's where we live. Yeah. Let's talk about um, sexual freedom. In, in When I Hit You, the husband is appalled when his wife has a sexual, when she moans during sex, he wants her to lie passively and just be the receptacle. Um, and in Flesh of the Peach, Sarah is... Um, She's bisexual, but that is a non-issue. It's just a thing. It's like whether what color her hair is. But she, she's rejected by one lover, and she's quite aggressive in pursuing her next lover. Um, and in, in both books, you, you've written women who are very much, they very much own their sexuality, even, when, even if they're not allowed to necessarily express it. And did that feel like a, a big leap? Uh, for me, culturally, yes, because um, and it's uh, it's a very recurring theme through my work because uh, I think uh, we li we li not only in a society where yeah, mourning is seen as bad, but just the mention of the word sex or you know, for instance, in Tamil culture, like if the wife has to uh, talk about sex to the husband, it's you know you don't talk about sex, so you possibly are going to tell your husband when he leaves home can you bring me jasmine flowers today? So it becomes a coda in language, so you don't, you don't even express physical desire. Or if the husband is bringing home jasmine flowers, it means he wants to get laid. So we live in a society where we are constantly walking around the edges without discussion, and this is the least repressive aspects. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> this is just, you know, things that can and cannot be said. So that's on the one outside. On the other hand, uh, the women who enjoy sex is naturally 
not the good person, but also, you know, is in, in various sense, the temptress and, the, you know, I think all cultures have this huge divide. Mm -hmm. And so in order to uh, reclaiming sex is the same way in which I think I reclaim this position of the intellect for the women, mm -hmm. saying that a woman can be an academic, she can be a philosopher, she can be a theoretician, and she can be all of this when she's a woman, the same way she can be somebody who's uh, sexual, she can be a seductress, and the same way she can be a woman. So. I think it's these are two things in which you're not allowed, you know, because it's the male brain and the male whatever that can lay claim to all of this, so you have to smash that. Mm. I think for me it's it's obviously different coming from a different culture. Yeah. What I was looking at is the the role that relationships play uh, in the idea of fiction. The, uh, there's this idea that uh, the love story will be the end story that will mm -hmm. fulfill you and... Um, contain you and soothe you and rescue you from yourself and I wanted to explore how that's not really the case and especially for this character she goes out with a purpose to find herself a cowboy mm -hmm. uh, and this idea that oh she'll be swept off her feet or you know somehow she doesn't have it but it's there in the background that this relationship will fulfill her and stop her going off the rails and in fact it just does not I just wanted to play with that idea and her with a, a, having an affair with a married woman is not something you find particularly often in fiction. I'd like that. I'd like that it was a little bit of an inversion that she was the aggressive party, although still as that affair is discovered, it's the, the man who is aggressive towards her to mm -hmm. violence. So I didn't remove it completely from reality when he finds out about the affair. He's very, very angry. Um, I wanted to show that the way that a, a relationship is is constructed in the mind can have very damaging effects when that is taken away or even as it's there so as the relationship is destroyed with with her lover that she carries that through the book with her trying to understand it piecing herself from this memory this thing that will that has gone but never leaves because she's carrying it with her and then her all of her expectations on on theo who's the cowboy uh of these hopes even not uttered to herself that he is going to fulfill her and redeem her, falling to pieces as she's sort of scrabbling them to hold them to herself. And that actually exacerbates her own problems because she hasn't had time to yeah. deal with it. Well, we've, we've got the exact opposite. In, in your book, the woman is a victim of horrible violence. And in your book, the woman is perpetrating violence. And I, 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 I still have, I'm, with, I'm on stage now and I still don't know how to turn that into a question. But I do find that a very interesting that that we've got every every bit of it is represented here on stage. I think they're both stories that need to be told. Mm. Uh, that the story of a woman just stripped of her agency, and then the story of a woman who <laughs> grabs the wrong <laughs> type of agency, perhaps. I don't know how best to put it, but the whole of female experience needs to be covered by fiction, right? But and I think the other aspect is also the question of violence because. We often uh, we often talk about uh, you know one of the things in the book is the violence is not only the violence of yeah the husband beating the wife but the violence of the larger society yes. the violence of the state this what the state does and I think these are questions that uh, or the violence that you witness as a child that makes you, and I think one of the ways in which violence dehumanizes us is that it tells us that it is an appropriate response or that it is uh, the only appropriate uh, thing to do because to, to gain control so I think it's just uh, it removes so much of space from you know 
it just occupies like it's it's something that can just like a genie out of a bottle or something it just occupies everything that it can take over and i think that's that's the nature of violence which we have to come in because it's it's not only about yeah like women becoming victims but also the larger violence in society because i think you know whether it's war or starvation or genocide and we are constantly living in appalling violence and what's happening within a bedroom or a kitchen is just a very small fragment of that kind of violence and I think we are living in a culture of violence here. Yeah. yeah, I think I see with my novel as well that mm. there's little references, not often, but to the Iraq and Afghanistan wars and the legacy that that has on people and the, and the community that she goes to, which yeah. is an impoverished community, people who've, whose sons and daughters have gone off to be soldiers and then just used up and spat out and that, what that violence far away, unseen, does to the community. Another thing in in both books is uh, is the notion of family. Families are so complicated. In in your book, obviously, you start with the mother co-opting the mm-hmm. daughter's story, but uh, there's also these very poignant conversations between the narrator and her parents. Every time she tries to tell them horrible things are happening to me. They're like, just behave, just don't disgrace us, don't bring shame on our house. Mm-hmm. And in, in your novel, we have a mother who, she's a painter, and she paints pictures of her daughter, but her daughter is mixed race and dark haired, and the daughter's always blonde in the paintings, even though she sat for hours very quietly doing that. And there's, there's not a lot of, it doesn't feel like it's a very nurturing family. And again, it's this, in both books, we've got this, this hideous expectation placed on these women by their families, which seems to lead them into more and more trouble or means that they can't get any assistance when they need it. Uh, as you said, yeah, this expectation placed on these women, but I also think why families fail is, and because, yeah, for instance, I've, uh, even personally, I haven't seen my parents for na- in a year. <laughs> Not because they failed me or I failed them, just that, yeah, I didn't have my papers to go anywhere. But um, when I think about it, I think we also place too much expectations. We expect that our moms love us. Mm-hmm. And, but the thing is that moms are always going to hold back some love just because they want you to be, I don't know, maybe be strong or just be your own person or just so that you just outdo yourself to get their approval. And I think it's very constant. The most loving per- mom in the world just holds back. And I've, I'm, I'm always looking at this relationship of mom and daughter and especially, you know, troubled relationships and things like that. And I think the fact is that we, exp- and, and I realize the older I grow and the more I look at it, like, we just have to treat, I don't know, like, it's sometimes a joke with my partner and say that maybe if we treat our parents absolute mental people, like, you know, in the sense that they're not going to do anything that subscribes to human logic and reason and love. Mm-hmm. They're going to do its exact opposite in that sense. Like, once we respect them and, you know, like, okay, we are dealing with somebody who's explosive, I think then it's fine because if we expect them to be like, yeah, the f- uh, cinema mom and dad, they're not going to be that, you know. So I don't know. I'm just like, just like constantly having to yeah navigate what it is to. Hmm. I think it, with the mother and daughter relationship in uh, Flesh of the Peach, it's an it's one that's based on a kind of. Um, I guess I'm going from the English traditions, and mm-hmm. there's a couple of books that are influence on this, like. Uh, uh, I Capture the Castle mm-hmm. and the idea of the nurturing and strange families in there uh, contrasted with the kind of stony, silent 
but magical house that, that is in that novel. And here, uh, Sarah has this wonderfully kind of dilapidated family mansion that she's inherited. So she's inherited and linked in with this long tradition of uh, decay and collapse and antagonism and this idea of privilege that she almost inhabits but has a complicated relationship to, uh, that she has the generational home, which I'm going to point out, I don't I don't have a castle. My mom and dad are over there, by the way. <laughs> um, so I'm not going to say anything too much about that. But uh, we, they have this, yeah, this kind of physical remnant of the failures and continuation of their family. And that is an important place. That's where her memories are located. There's sections of her memories that she keeps coming back to. And then there's the sense of mystery that she doesn't understand her her mother who is extremely withholding and extremely far back and almost punishes her when she comes for for warmth and love mm. this this woman just lives in her paintings and in the decay of her home i wanted to kind of look at that that aspect of how do you how do you show a generation how do you show a family that is always struggling to be functional and I just put it in stone um, literally so I, I wanted to know how I'm, I suspect the answer is yes but I'm, I guess I'm looking for anecdotes um, what kind of backlash has there been as uh, you've you've had trouble online haven't you with people trolling you about your novel I don't know have you had um, Sorry, go first. Oh, yeah. <laughs> no, I, I think, uh, well, the trolling has been much before this book came. But I also think that we, just as the concept of the novel is, you know, constantly being reshaped and yeah. claimed. But I also think that we come from a tradition where anything that is in a book is seen as sacred and as the inviolable truth. So you get reviews of the book, like not this one, the previous one, for instance, saying that I have to provide hard evidence that these historical incidents that I narrate actually happened. So people are like, even if you declare it to be fiction, they're reading it not even as your narrative or account, but as the gospel truth. So on the, that, that kind of, uh, you know, the fact that once something is set in paper, it's always going to be read like that. So yes, on the one hand, you, 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 you read that. But on the other hand, I think that um, this kind of a book, uh, when I was writing it, there was huge pressure, which is also why like, I know I'm never going to write a memoir about this because it's too shaky territory. I have to write what's really fictional and you know, drop away so many other things in order to get the story out. But one of the things I felt was that women who are reading it will not read it as a story, but they would read it as their own escape card and I knew that in my mind, like, so this this would be read as a manifesto by some, but by some it would be like, she got away, so how am I going to get away, you know what I mean? So you you have to, in a sense, as a writer, uh, you know, hold or, I don't know, sublimate some of your anxiety and stress or depression and just present something that is empowering in the end because there's a lot of people who are just going to suspend the fact that they are reading literature as opposed to reading an intervention. That's mm -hmm. Women have written to me saying they're walking out of 20 years of bad marriage. And that is something, you know, like after reading this book. So I think I'm, there is an, <laughs> there's that's where, a, that's a good there I think where a novel steps out of what it is, a construct into something that forces someone to look at their life and act. Wow, that's, that's amazing. Sorry, I just want to, I'm in awe of that. 
Well, with mine, it hasn't been so much the uh, the content or the plot uh, that people have responded maybe negatively to, but the form, because it is a really? more experimental form, and there's an idea that I didn't know what I was doing. I had this, when I was trying to get it published, uh, several people <laughs> read it. Uh, one, one was an agent uh, who helpfully said, I didn't know how to write, and I should ask my friend who had recommended me to learn how to write properly. Um, because I'm not writing in the realist tradition, because I'm making these small no. experimental things. When you do experimental literature, you have to do headbanging or you have to become a mister. You don't have to become <laughs> like just Kandasami with a male name, just mean Kandasami or some male version of you. Because one of the things was uh, a very famous Indian publisher was willing to publish my first novel as long as I dropped the metafictional part of it. And I was like, no, that's the fucking point of the book. <laughs> <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not going to drop what's, what's the heart of the book, you know? So the fact is that, uh, or, or other male critics were saying, because, you know, I also use a fragmented form, and here the fragment is to show that this woman is trapped, so she, she exists in... She exists in spurts and, uh, yeah. you know, in mm. brief spurts. She cannot exist in a continuum because when the husband is there, she's a different person. She's switching off. When he's not there, she's thinking. So how do you even uh, capture this reality within literature? You cannot have, like, pages and pages like Dickens, you know. You have to write, <laughs> you have to write in short spurts to just capture one thought, one idea, one grief, one moment of uh, all of this. And uh, the idea was like, ah, this is because... Uh, you know, it's the influence of Facebook, mm. <laughs> you know, <laughs> we, are, we are writing. But also, on the other hand, uh, so if, if you're female and I think doing experimental literature, like uh, you just have to, you only have to ho have hope that, yeah, 50 years down the lane, college girls are going to be reading you and having these secret little fan clubs for you because <laughs> nobody else is going to look up to you. So, <laughs> so you just have some faith in some mythical college girls coming there 20, 50, th 100 years later. Well, because we, yeah. you were probably one of those college girls finding yeah. the books that spoke to you. Yeah. And yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's the only reason to They're the only them. ones who I think are not going to be going by, yeah, all of these, uh, you know, gatekeepers, yeah. <laughs> I think. I thought you were going to talk about the fact that you dared to write a woman who behaves as badly as any man would behave, I've that hasn't been the issue. I think it's because I've had very few reviews, actually. <laughs> uh, so there's, there's kind of a silence around it, which is the, the silence of a woman writing anything is often there's just nothing. There's just uh, less. And it doesn't help when your publisher goes through major rocks. It's freight, it's yeah. freight, which many of you may know, lost its head and is looking for its head now. And, and so that doesn't help either when Ye your publisher kind of goes in and out of the... Yeah, there were some issues with uh, publicity and things like that. But it, I mean, from the reviews that it has got, it's been very positive. It was getting it published that was the hard thing, and the science around that took... Because I you wrote this before you wrote the flash fiction book that won a prize, Yes, correct? exactly. Yeah. I finished this in 2013, which is maybe why Iraq and Afghanistan are more in it, because uh, it is a, it's a historical novel now. Mm. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it just took so long to get publishers interested, to get anyone to see that this was a book that had merit, because it was doing something that is not all that common, to write mm. flash fiction. And I mean, there are people who, you know, I go into bookshops to look for flash, flash fiction collections because I love it as a yeah. form. It's so intense and interesting. And you'll go up to, you know, a bookseller and they'll be like, what's flash fiction? So I think that this is something that I would love to see more of is this awareness of the form as a kind of 
hybrid of poetry and prose that is valid as a, something to read. At the moment, it's more of a writing exercise that mm -hmm. is popular mm -hmm. because it's quick and easy for writers to do. You can't make too many mistakes as you're learning. Um, although, of course, you might not write something that's, that's any good, but you feel like you're growing. You know, it's one of those great experiments to do. But I think for readers, it has, uh, as a reader myself, it has all these rewards and that but you're kind of holding up this tiny little square of you know 100 words or uh, under a thousand words and then you've got the big weighty victorian novel that is hanging over all of us mm. saying this is how writing should be mm. you know dickens or or even you know further back you got jane austen you're like i can't i can't write like her because she wrote like her you yeah. Know? Yeah, yeah, yeah yeah all right it's we've got about 10 minutes left i'd ask if you can turn up the house lights I'm imagining there are some questions now after this amazing... Okay, I see a question here. There's, there's a roving mic, so just wait until the mic comes and be sure to speak into it. Okay, can I just say how much I enjoyed both of these novels? I thought they were, they were brilliant, both of them, the, the form, the language, the themes, and the presentation of the characters. But a brief question to each. Um, firstly, in terms of the domestic abuse, I mean, I wonder to what extent you, you see it as very specifically an Indian novel, because when I read it, it's kind of... It, it seemed to replicate a lot of what women in particular that have been saying in Scotland over the last 25 years about uh, violence against women and domestic abuse about p power control and wider inequality in society. So I wonder to what extent you see it as specifically Indian or whether it really is something that's universal in its essence. In terms of the other one, um, I was interested in the, the prefatory quote about grief and rage, and I wondered to what extent you felt... Um, the character understood some of that, or is that a problem? If you want to present that as an issue and yet the character doesn't really understand it, to what extent did she, were you able to bring that across so that it was in terms of the character? Wow, uh, I, good question. Mm. Well, I think, uh, uh, no, I think it's impossible for me to not look at what, whatever I write as, any, as Indian, uh, partly because that's where I've lived like 30 years of my life and also uh, most of my yeah, experiences are fashioned by it and also like so much of the culture but also the first my first language itself is Tamil not English so when I write I grapple through not only you know culturally imposed things but also what's linguistically embedded in like my own ways of thinking so I think also, like uh, for instance, people talk about domestic violence, but in India, it's like it's 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 a huge minefield, and therefore there's a, there's an element in which uh, the fact that uh, yeah, a, a book like this could uh, could generate so much debate, and people were looking at it as more like an activist writing a book, you know, and that's, even though it's completely like in my mind, it's a work of literature, but yeah, I think it's it's far more worse there. But the fact that People, you know, Scottish women, I was in Dublin and so many people said that this was like their life. I'm just surprised because then you understand that, yes, women, positively surprised because, yeah, women's experience is universal and especially male violence on women is universal. So I'm just happy all the time when I, when I hear that kind of thing. Not happy about the violence, but yeah. Um, so for the, the quote that you were talking about, I'll read it out. It's at the front of the novel. Mm -hmm. Why does tragedy exist? Because you are full of rage. Why are you full of rage? Because you are full of grief. And it's by Anne Carson from Grief Lessons, four plays by Euripides. It's from her introduction to it. So as you know, this, we're going to some Greek tragedy stuff here. And obviously everyone knows that the, the big uh, mechanism behind all the things going wrong in Greek tragedy is hubris. 
But I think for uh, Sarah, it's not knowing herself and unknowingness and not even knowing that she has this thing that she can't grapple with, that she has rage. Because I think for some women, uh, anger is modified into tears or it's, it's, it's shifted away from anger because it's unacceptable to be angry. And it's seen as, you know, too much and too exposed and unlikable. So she can't even deal with the anger that she's feeling of a mother who's rejected her all her life, dying and suddenly giving her this money. Oh, you think money is a good problem, but it's also, you know, how does she resolve her own guilt that is mixed in with this rage? And uh, the, the disruption of her of a relationship that was going very well, even though it had terrible uh, background to it, it was severed from her. She has nothing. She, she should feel angry, but she doesn't know how she feels. Mm. So it's that kind of, yeah, the tension between the the emotion that takes time to sort of percolate and settle and be put into words and the actions that happen before that happens uh, and lead to terrible consequences. We can probably do one more question. And then anybody who didn't get a chance to ask a question, when you come to the bookshop, you can ask, whether you buy the book or not, you can come and ask a question. So there's somebody back there? Yeah. Hi, it's a question for Helen. Um, I love that we don't get Sarah's full backstory and that she remains all the more interesting for being ambiguous and unfathomable. I was just wondering, from your point of view as the writer, was that how you wrote her? Did you have to create a broader version of the character and then decide what to conceal and reveal? Mm, that's an interesting one. No, she just uh, came out. The pieces that I wrote were... I write in a very kind of instinctive way. I kind of keep writing and writing and writing and deleting a lot of stuff. I never plan. The writing that comes out of the character kind of swims up through the darkness. And that is all I saw of her. And I think it's the way that we interact with everybody. We don't see the fullness of a person. So I just, I like that, that that's what I was going for, hoping just to see fragments and leave the dark you know, shadows behind her. She can be what else, whatever she is to other people as well as readers read to fill in that gap. And that's another thing I like about readers creating from pieces. Uh, that's a kind of magical process, really. Well, I think we're going to end it there. Um, if you let us just get out ahead of you so we can get to the bookshop. Before we leave, can we please thank our wonderful well, thank authors? You. Thank you. More podcasts and videos of Edinburgh International Book Festival events are available at www.edbookfest.co.uk on iTunes and YouTube. Just search for EdBookFest. The next book festival is on from the 11th to the 27th of August 2018.